This week, we will be concluding our four-week sermon series we've called, The Gospel Makes the Church. Last week, we looked at how the gospel makes the church missional. We looked at how we don't always get sent to areas and to people that we would like to be sent to. Sometimes it's, it's hard to go and share the good news about Jesus to the people that know us. People that know us maybe a little better than we want them to. Sometimes it's hard to be involved in the inconvenient areas of people's lives, but God, He doesn't really care. He's not concerned about any of that. He sends us anyway. His message, His mission is too important to be bogged down by our hesitancy and our lack of commitment. We conclude this series by looking at how the gospel makes the church powerful. Our text this week is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll be looking at at the, two, at, the, at the first two verses. Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church. This is the, the first of two letters he sends to these guys. And as we look at this passage, as we explore a bit what it means that the church is powerful, I pray that you are encouraged and challenged by what God has for each of us this morning. Again, the text is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 and 2. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to follow along. There should be a Bible in the holder in, in front of you, if you'd like, but, but the words will also be on the screens beside me. We read the word of the Lord this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. For your word is truth. God, I pray that you would Perform the miracle that feeds our souls and speak through your word to us this morning. God, we pray this in your name. Amen. So I'm tired. I'm a little tired. There's, there's reasons for that, and I'll get into some of them, but some of us, I was just at the men's retreat this weekend, and it was awesome, but we, we came back a little late last night. I think I finally settled into bed around... Around maybe around 2 a.m. and then and then I got up this morning. So you know I, I'm sure I look just incredibly chipper, but I'm I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty tired. And it's not like it's just a one like right now this day thing. I've if you've seen me the last I don't know I'll approximate eight weeks, <laughs> ten weeks maybe. I've just been I've been worn out, and, and a lot of that has to do with having a 10 week old who is struggling to find a sleep pattern. Now, I love Amos. Like, I love that little dude. He's my son. I will always care for him. But that little guy's driving me crazy. <laughs> Some nights, he mostly sleeps. But a lot of nights, he just struggles to go from a light, like the initial sleep, and then transition into a deeper sleep. And so often, in that transition, he'll just wake himself up. It's like, this isn't making you happier, man. Like, this isn't what you want to do. But he, he wakes himself up, he's frustrated, he's crying, and, and then he's awake and, and screaming. And Karen and I are frantically trying to figure out ways to get this dude back into slumber. 
Often that has meant having him lay next to us in bed. And I don't know how many of you have slept next to an infant, but it's not necessarily restful sleep. Amos does the baby thing where he lays there all still and then suddenly flails his arms. And he hits me and I jerk like, what's going on? What's next? Everything okay? We're all good? We're good? No? And the poor little guy, he's, he's had a cold for the last couple weeks. And so he, he starts to choke on his, on his snot, you know, that, that's building up in his nose and running down his throat. And, and Karen and I both just like jerk awake, right, when one of us will pick him up and, and try to nurse him through his choking. And then this little punk, he has an alarm like set in his bones where he wakes up at five in the morning. He, he, just, he just does. There's no reason. Like, this isn't something that should be happening. Five in the morning, on the dot, this dude is awake. And though it's mostly Karen who deals with him during the wee hours of the morning, I have taken my turns on occasion. Not going to tell you how occasional. But it's happened. It's been a thing that's happened. But even if I'm not, like, fully waking up to deal with him, right, my sleep is still disrupted by the care that my wife has to give this demanding little boy that I love so much but that has been wearing me out. So I'm tired. And maybe some of you can relate. Not necessarily to having a 10-week-old who's robbing you of rest, but just feeling tired. Some of you may be tired from work or tired from school, tired from sports ball practice, tired from your schedule, tired from from stretches or being stretched beyond just our physical situations. You might get the best sleep in the world, have purchased the best mattress for your sleeping style. You know, you did the research, you got the one that's going to work for you. You might be rocking those like night blinders, I don't know what they're called, my sisters use them, sorry girls, but like they're these black things that they put on, it's like pitch black, right? Like maybe, that, maybe that's what, what helps you get that sleep. And you know exactly how much sleep you need to function for, for peak performance. And yet you still wake up tired. Because being tired isn't just a physical thing, is it? Being tired can be a mental thing. Being tired can be a spiritual thing. Are any of us spiritually exhausted? We spent the past three weeks looking at the things the gospel makes the church. We've seen how it makes us unique, that we are each uniquely unqualified to be part of the mission, but God has called us to it anyway, and, and He is our qualification. We've seen how the gospel makes us one, though we have tensions and struggles with each other. The, the mission that God has called us to, to, to reconciliation and to moving forward together, despite the differences we may have in church or other areas of life. And we looked at how the gospel makes the church missional, right? It, it calls to people that have hurt us. It calls us to go to people that have hurt us, that, that know our embarrassing pasts, people that we have hurt and people that we have been hurt by. The gospel calls us to be involved in people's lives, even when it's inconvenient and, and hard. And man, all of that is tiring. It's emotionally stretching, in practice, it is sometimes overwhelming. Just thinking about the scope of it is spiritually exhausting. So how are we doing with that? 
We spend time talking about what the gospel makes the church. How are we doing that? We're doing with that. I find it incredibly encouraging, but also, well, tiring. And so I find myself excited on one hand and yet discouraged. I want to be part of the mission. I want to be part of what God has called the church to do, but I find it hard sometimes. I find it exhausting sometimes. Especially when I'm spending so much time just tripping over my own struggles and flaws. It's exhausting fighting the sin that lives so deep in my heart, the the sin that I don't have the ability to evict. I'm not always good at keeping a bridle on my tongue. It, It lashes when it's supposed to stay still. I'm not always good at keeping the anger and hurt that I've tried to let go of, that I've, I've told myself I've forgiven from seeping up into my everyday life. I'm not always good at curbing the desires of my sinful heart, and I fight it like I'm, I'm supposed to fight it. But I still struggle against it. I, I strive to resist. And most of the time, I'm, I'm pretty good at that. Most of the time, I do a pretty good job at resisting Most of the time, I'm able to keep a bridle on the tongue, right? I'm I'm able to let go of my hate. I'm able to keep my opinions to myself. I'm able to speak graciously. Most of the time, I'm able to resist the more despicable and embarrassing desires of my heart. But most of the time is not all the time, is it? And so not only are we fighting a battle against our sinful nature that is tiring, And that is spiritually exhausting. But we're fighting a battle that we lose more times than we want to admit. I don't know about you, church, but man, does that make me tired. Sometimes it makes me feel I've just given up. I can't win anyway. The extent of my strength has been tapped. I'm exhausted physically, mentally, spiritually. and, And I wasn't enough because I fell short. How's God going to use that? How's God going to use someone that has continually messed up the things that the gospel makes the church? How is he going to possibly use someone that continues to struggle, continues to fail, continues to fall short of his potential? Can anyone else relate to that? Anyone else feel these struggles? So how are you doing with that? It's exhausting, right? Because we know we're all sinners. The Bible is very clear on that point. None of us has the ability or the power to be all that God has called us to be. And so if nobody in the big C church, the invisible church, the the body of believers is able to live up to the expectations of the mission that God has called us to, then how in the world does the church go forward? If every element of my van, the big beastly vehicle that I have out there, that I depend on for transportation didn't function for the purpose it was created and called to, my van van wouldn't move forward, right? Like it, it couldn't go forward. If the tires couldn't hold air, the engine couldn't turn over, if the sparks plugs refused to fire, the fuel lines bled gas all over the pavement, man, my van, it'd be useless. It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't function. It wouldn't be able to move forward. I'd either need to spend more money than I have trying to put that thing back together, or I'd get a, need to get a new one. And sometimes when we look at the church and we see how bad we've been at functioning in the ways that God has called us to, how poor we've been at loving our neighbor, how focused we've been on ourselves, and how we've neglected our brothers and sisters, we're all a bunch of broken sinners, we, we wonder why God just doesn't go out and get a new one. 
How are we going to get this van moving forward? How could God possibly expect the church and the mission that we have been called to join him in? How could he expect this plan to work with such a faulty, broken, tired bunch of pieces? And just thinking that can be depressing, humiliating, embarrassing, and exhausting. And we can think, man, God should just get himself a new church. He should just go get himself something that will actually move the mission forward. He should get himself something that is serviceable for the needs of his mission. The mission is, is too important to trust to us. It's too, important. it's too important for my shaky hands to handle. I'm going to break it. I'm going to mess it up. God, you should just call somebody else. You should just go get a new one. But church, that's not what he did, is it? Nah, he took the crazy expensive route. And instead of replacing the church with a new one, God decided to invest heavily into the broken mess that we are. But his investment went way beyond a few hours or weeks at a body shop and many thousands of dollars. God invested himself, he invested his son, for he sent Jesus Christ to us. We can't be fixed by our own power. No amount of, of self-help books are going to get the job done. To repair our inside, we need help from the outside. And so Christ came from heaven to earth, and he lived among us, and he taught us. And he performed miracles, and he healed the sick, and he raised the dead. He fed the hungry. He went to the hurting and to the poor. And he hurt, and he felt hunger and thirst beside them. And he didn't just pay lip service. He lived a difficult life during a difficult time, and he did it all for us. And how did we respond to this gracious act of God sending his son? We hated him. We couldn't stand how he was right all the time. We didn't like how he shook our social structures. We didn't like how he made us look bad. We were comfortable in our sin and our mistaken understandings. And so we conspired against him. And, and so though Jesus was doing all this, this great and fantastic and wonderful stuff, many couldn't see it for the greatness it was and instead were fixated on how he was messing with their lives, messing with their insecurities, messing with their presuppositions. And they didn't like that at all. And so they arranged for his betrayal. And they arranged for a sham of a trial, and they arranged for a rigged jury, and they arranged for Jesus to go walking up the hill to Golgotha with the instrument of his death slung across his shoulders. But it was not just the cross he carried, but the sins of the world, your sin, my sin, all sin for all time, what we have done and what we will do. Jesus carried all of it up the hill with the cross. And as the nails were put in his hands and his feet, and as he was raised up before man, the Bible tells us that on the cross, Jesus became sin for us. I don't know if we have the ability to truly grasp what that means most of the time. Sometimes it hits me harder than others. But Jesus became the sin that I do. The embarrassing things that I don't want anyone to know about. The sin that I'm ashamed of. The stuff from my, my past that, that I don't talk about. The things that I've done to hurt my family. The things that I have done to hurt people that I love. The things that I have done to hurt myself. The things that I have done that hurt my God. The God who created me. Jesus became all of that on the cross. 
He became intimately aware of all of my sin. And instead of rejecting me like I deserve, instead of casting me aside for a better model, Jesus took all of my failings, including the ones that I don't even know about yet. He took all of them upon himself on the cross. And that's just as true as it is for you, for you as it is for me. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, He took your sin upon Himself. He became our sin on that cross. And there on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out over Him because of the things that we have done. Jesus took all of God's wrath. He drank fully from the cup that we had filled. And there on the cross, He died in our place for our sin. What an investment. God didn't replace the car. He didn't didn't cast us aside. He sent His Son to go through all of this so that we might be saved, that we might be brought into His family. For you see, church, Jesus did not stay dead. Three days after His death, He rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in Him, when we trust in Him, when we acknowledge that without Him we are incapable of doing anything pleasing for God, when we rest in the faith that God has given us, we are saved. Through faith we receive the benefits of our forgiveness and we are washed white as snow. The Bible tells us that when we believe in Jesus, we are clothed with Christ. The dirty rags of our sins are taken from us and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is the power of the gospel. As our text says this morning, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. The gospel that Paul is writing about is this story, the story of Jesus, the truth of his death on our behalf. And that is good news. That is what we have based our hope on. That is the gospel. And as Paul writes to the Corinthian church, by this gospel you are saved. This is the one message with the power to save. The one And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're saved through faith in Jesus. We're saved, but not just saved. For by the gospel we are sent. Through Christ, the vehicle of God's mission is restored. The church is not just a display of God's power meant to sit untouched in a museum somewhere, but has been empowered for mission. Friends, brothers, and sisters in Christ, the gospel makes the church powerful. As Katie read in Matthew 16 this morning, Jesus tells Peter, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. God's purpose and plan for his church is too powerful for Satan and his minions to defeat. It might feel like a close contest to us down here living in the storm sometimes. It might feel like we're losing. It might feel like the church is going to fall apart. It might feel like we'll cave to the pressures from the outside or destroy each other from within. And hey, in places, that might and probably will happen. No small C church lasts forever. The church that Paul sent the letters in the book of Revelation, yeah, they're not around anymore. They gone. Just as God doesn't promise us that life on earth will be easy, we have no guarantee that our brick-and-mortar churches will make it. But what we are promised is that in the end, the gospel wins. In the end, God wins. 
His purpose will come to pass. In the end, all will be made new. God isn't losing this one. Church, our mission will be accomplished because our mission does not depend on us. The power of the mission does not come from us. It comes from the gospel. It comes from Jesus. It comes from the creator of the universe. And he isn't losing. It's just mind-blowing to me that he's using us. He's calling us for such an important purpose because church, redeemed, justified, and forgiven though we are, we are still a bunch of broken sinners, aren't we? We struggle against our sin and sometimes we struggle with each other. And we are so tired of the struggle, we're tired of the fight, sometimes we're just so tired of the mission. How thankful I am for a God that does not give up on the tired. How thankful I am for a God that does not cast the exhausted away. How thankful I am for a God that has walked beside us, that that pours out into us His grace and His mercy and His love and His compassion. How thankful I am for a God that knows our deepest, darkest secrets, embarrassments, guilts, and shame and does not cast us aside, but instead calls us to repentance, overwhelms us with forgiveness, and sends us on mission. The gospel makes the church powerful. Not because it makes the members of the church, believers, perfect and and, and fixes all their flaws. No, the gospel makes the church powerful because it is the message, the will of God to the imperfect. That they may know how much God loves them. That they might find forgiveness for the things that they have done that they might find redemption, that they might come into relationship with their Heavenly Father. The Gospel is a message that saves. And through the message of the Gospel, God will win. How exciting it is to be part of God's mission, Calvary. I don't know all the ways that, that God will be using our little church in His mission, but I'm thankful that God has called me here. I'm thankful that God has brought each of you here. And I'm looking forward to the powerful ways in which he will use each and every one of us to spread his gospel to Bergenfield and beyond. What a fantastic, loving, gracious, merciful, and powerful God we serve. Amen.